This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, my friend? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I can't complain. I'm pretty tired. Right now, is about. it is about 10.15 uh, p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Thursday the 6th. This episode should be released on Sunday for Mother's Day, so happy Mother's Day. For happy Mother's Day. Any mother who's any, listening. You got any plans for Mother's Day? Um, I, unfortunately, I don't. Well, I do actually. My mother lives in a different state in Virginia, so um, I'm going to my girlfriend's family's house and celebrating Mother's Day there, but hmm. I'm sending my mom flowers. Uh, and spoiler stuff. alert and, uh, <laughs> hopefully well, she doesn't coming get the, out until sunday anyway so yeah you know will, will the flowers get there first or will the episode drop first <laughs> i don't know that's a good question you know <laughs> if the flowers don't get there before she listens to the episode i'll i'll uh, get a happy I'll, mother's I'll day file a complaint <laughs> uh i actually have some interesting plans my um my mom also lives in a different state but that state happens to be new jersey so it's not very far um and uh, she had the bright idea, since we're all vaccinated now, to go do something. Uh, so she wanted to go to Atlantic City. Even though my mom doesn't gamble or drink or like any of that, she just wanted to do something fun and different, you know. And God bless her, because I love Atlantic City. As like depressing and weird as it is, I just, I like being in a casino and like drinking and, you know, playing craps or roulette or whatever. I didn't realize that the casinos were open. Yeah, not not only are they open, but uh, the weekend after I'm going, they're opening 100%. So they're going to be at 100% capacity. Um, Of course, you still have to wear your mask and stuff like that. But I'm actually kind of interested in going and seeing what is a casino like, you know, at the tail end of like a pandemic. (laughs) You know, like what is... What's the deal? Are they going to put up plastic dividers in between like the spaces at the craps table? Um, Or is it like going to be where you can't... I don't know. Like, how, how does drinking work? Because part of my favorite, like, pastime of going to a casino isn't the gambling. It's just, like, being able to drink as much as you like, you know, and you don't have to pay for it, kind of. So that part is super fun. Well, I wear a mask in Atlantic City. I was wearing a mask in Atlantic City before COVID-19. And I Were recommend you? it to everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's Atlantic City. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gross place. Yeah. it's It's a sad place. It is. it is very sad. I had maybe the saddest family vacation there when I was like, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. I was probably Yeah, that's not the time school. to go to Atlantic City. <laughs> it was before. It was like my first experience there. And um, it was just so gross. My, <laughs> we were walking on the boardwalk and my mom called it the evil boardwalk. That was her name <laughs> for it. It actually, it may have not, we had a trip to Atlantic City and in Wildwood. I think she might have called the Wildwood Boardwalk, the evil boardwalk. I, I kind of like Wildwood, but yeah. It was very, it's too many, too many weeds. Too many, well, you know, I grew up around them, so it don't bother I know, me. me too. Me too. But my mom's not from New York. She's from Virginia, so she's, it's, it's uh, like a, it's like a different see, world. Uh, Joey and Nuncio uh, <laughs> walking down with their wife beaters, yelling at their fucking girl Marie. Marie, get the fuck over here! Hey, <laughs> I mean that's uh, what I grew up with. <laughs> yeah, in high school and college, I was that was people who were surrounding me. Um, that's how I ended up so smart and able to deliver uh, podcast stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, all right, good transition. <laughs> so. Last episode, we did a, um, well, we did an episode on Russia, Russia's plan to clone an army of ancient Scythian warriors. 
um yeah i mean it was kind of a fun thing to do it obviously that's just a goofy conspiracy thing that kind of circulated the web last week so we did a we used that off as a jumping point to uh, actually talk about what a scythian was because uh that's what they were claiming that russia was going to do they were going to clone these ancient horseback warriors and somehow put them on the front line mm-hmm. in the ukraine um mm-hmm. but or so that's felt, what dailymail.co.uk yeah, told it. the fourth largest newspaper in uh, england said that or the uk mm-hmm. and um we've been we've been concentrating on eastern europe specifically the conflict in russia and ukraine and we've been trying to also dive into the the history um, and explain things like the um, the identity politics that are going on today, as well as the formation of the state and stuff like that. And we use that as a jumping off point to talk about Russia before there was a state. So specifically the Eurasian steppe. And what made the Eurasian steppe very interesting is that it was just very open grassland that ran from mongolia to manchuria um and stretched through through modern day russia and all the way into the great hungarian plains and what was special about it is that it inspired a lot of movement like not inspired movement like get up and move and do something like it it literally like the way that the geography made you move like it it you didn't really settle there because it was just wide open plains, just wide open grasslands. We kept mm-hmm. on using the analogy, uh, comparing it to Game of Thrones, because, I mean, that's what people who talk about history do now. They compare to, to make it understandable to other people. They, they use Game of Thrones as the analogy. So we compared it to the, the Dothraki Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who lived in this area were nomadic horseback people. Um, like the Scythians, who we were concentrating on, but there was also other groups like the Samartians and the Huns, and eventually the Mongols. So that, the Dothraki, basically. The, so the <laughs> Dothraki, the the people that yeah. the Dothraki are based off. But the ultimate point of that episode was to give you an idea of what that region of the world was like prior to anything that we would like consider Russian before there were these medieval states that started appearing and obviously way before the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire it was a lot of horseback people who were right. running and raiding and killing killing fucking and drinking and whoring <laughs> cracking skulls and cracking skulls but since the steppe was so open and since the Eurasian steppe stretches so far, so we're talking about something that connects continents. Continents. <laughs> it makes yeah. Asia Eurasia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big. It's a giant superhighway. Yeah, it's a giant superhighway that it always had a very large movement of different tribes going mainly from east to west, and they were migrating west because. The more east you go in the steppe, the less moisture you get from the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, the grass is literally greener on the other side. Like, right. it's a better ecosystem for agriculture and things like that. Mm-hmm. The more west you go, the more east you go in the steppe, it's, it's dry and cold. Yeah. It's and that's why you always <laughs> see these invasions in Europe. Now, on this episode, what we're trying to focus on are the origins of the Slavic people. Typically, when historians are talking about Slavic people, um, they're talking about three different groups. They're talking about the, the Western Slavs, who would be people like the, the, the Czechs and the Slovaks and the, uh, and the Polacks, basically the people who settled in Central Europe. And then... The Southern Slavs, who were the people who settled in the Balkans, so, you know, Serbians and Bulgarians. And then the Eastern Slavs, who, you know, we're, we're mainly going to focus on. Um, that would be the Ukrainians, the Belarusians, and the Russians. Now, going back to the Eurasian steppe, and this is a, a murky history. Um, all history that goes back this far is, is pretty murky. 
But the popular consensus is that Slavs started to appear around 700 AD or so. It could have been earlier. It could have been a little bit later. But I think that is kind of an estimate based on ballpark ballpark range. They started showing up around 700 AD or so. And um, the different tribes traveling across this superhighway, in this case, the uh, the southern plains of the of the Pontic Caspian Steppe, which is um, the plains that are north of the Black Sea. Right. They started the funnel out in what is now Ukraine, and they settled around a riverbank, the riverbank of the Dnieper. Is it Dnieper or Dnieper? It's Dnieper. I think it's Dnieper, but I could be pronouncing that incorrectly. I thought it was Dnieper. Maybe the D Um, is silent, like Django. (laughs) Maybe maybe it is. Uh, We'll call it the Dnieper, just so if someone calls us out for a mispronunciation, they can blame you. Okay, cool. (laughs) No, because I always get blamed for that. Yeah, I'll take the blame. You mispronounced that guy's name. It's Dnieper. It's Dnieper, you idiot. Duh. Well, I even do a podcast, you fucking idiots. You can't even pronounce words. No. <laughs> can't pronounce Ukrainian words. Rivers, you fucking idiots. <laughs> um, but this river, it rises from the upland region in, in northwest central Russia, and it flows down through. You know what we, you know, modern Belarus and into Ukraine, and then eventually goes into the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. Now, the first major state there is established on the bank of that river, and the state is called the Kievan Rus. Here are the two primary reasons what what makes this area like a spot where humans can kind of flourish. It has natural tributaries that facilitate commerce. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to move people around. Most importantly, this area is connected with the Black Sea, which linked Rus' with the Eastern Roman Empire. Right, the Byzantine Empire, right. Mm-hmm. But also in this area, the soil produces extremely high agriculture yields, which yep. allowed this, this area to support a large population. Um, it's called chernism, which means um, black soil or black earth in Russian. Right, right. There's, and and it's also just like the climate there too. So there's like a long enough growing season there to allow you know for crops to be grown really easily. Um, because you know the further out you go, like as you said, the further east you go, the drier, the colder, etc. That it gets. Um, but in this particular region, you know, it was the the season for crop yield is long enough where they can actually get, you know, uh, a really good yield out of their growth. And, you know, even till today, this, this region is, is like basically the breadbasket, not only just for Russia, but for actually a lot of Europe too, um, still. Uh, and, and then this being that, that you can basically grow food and stockpile a shit ton for cold winters, which was very important, uh, for that region. Um, and then you can either have it as wheat in a silo, or you can, or you can vodka. Uh, and vodka uh, was a particularly good way to sell the excess produce that they had, obviously for a substantial profit. So that's kind of where vodka comes from. Interesting fact: the word vodka comes from the Russian word for water. I did not know that. Well, speaking of water, I think you mentioned this already. They have a lot of tributaries in Russia, a lot of rivers, right? And and like you said, it helps the Russians grow more food. Um, you know, because they can irrigate more land and, you know, they can also use it, uh, as a way to, uh, you know, do trade, right? So Kiev, which, um, is, uh, is the main city in the Kiev and Rus had more people, uh, you know, than any other city in Western Europe during its height in the 11th century and, and other cities like Novogorod, um, they also grew pretty big too. Uh, and all of those rivers that they had served this purpose for them. And, and the purpose was that, you know, uh, it, it was it was literally a waterway, right? So the cities of, of Kiev and Novogorod were basically on the way between like the Viking people and the Byzantines, which were obviously two of the bigger trading powers, uh, you know, in the 10th and 11th century. 
Uh, so the rivers basically turn the whole region into one giant trade route, right? Uh, and the the Rus basically grew really rich off of this, um, but they were also exposed to a lot of stuff. So they were exposed to a lot of cultural ideas, religions, politics, and a whole lot of violence. We can probably get to that later, though. Um, yeah. But before I get to... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Just comparing this, this part of Eastern Europe with the rest of, of Russia, because mm-hmm. we're going to try to get down into some more complicated, debated parts of this history. Mm-hmm. Um, but comparing this region with like the rest of Russia, like Russia has, throughout its entire history, it's had a huge uh, scarcity problem. Still does, because all of this natural resources are up north. Right. And it's like Siberia. Right. And like they're growing, like compared to, um, you know, these black earth regions, most of Russia has really short growing seasons. Right. And it's, they don't have enough produce to really, uh, they don't produce enough yields to like, uh, to have a bad year. You know, like once they have a bad year, they're fucked. Right. All right, so let's get back to the the, the Kievan Rus. Um, so, like, how did the first Slavic state like come into existence? I mean, naturally, when you're dealing with history where there's there's a lot to interpret, the origin story always becomes a political debate, an exercise in creating some type of national identity. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to pinpoint the origins of the Slavs in general. I think some of the earliest stories we have about the Slavs, not even the Kievan Rus, but just the Slavs themselves, you know, they start when the Slavs had already split into three separate groups, you know? So it's kind of hard to get the story straight when you you don't even have the start of the story. Well, the term itself, so Kievan Rus is a modern term, and it's just a term that's used to distinguish like one historical period versus another. The, the modern definition like that you would see in a um, like a history book or an encyclopedia. I guess, like, a popular definition yeah an encyclopedia mm-hmm. is that it's a state that was established in the 10th century by the princes of the Rurikid dynasty that eventually was conquered by the Mongols and, and divided it into a bunch of smaller tiny states but there's a lot of debate on whether this was, something that was real or not and also you know again these terms were invented in you know the age of nationalism so the Mm -hmm. 19th and 20th century i read a paper um recently by it was from saint petersburg university it was i think it was translated from russian to english so it's not perfect but it's from a au uh Kievan Rus is an artificial scholarly term for the first centuries of the history of the East Slavs, approximately 9th or 8th to the beginning of the 13th centuries. Historians begin to comprehend this period as integral, united, important, and differ from the others' periods only at the beginning of the 20th century. What he's saying is that, you know, this is, the Kievan Rus is a modern construct. There was never anyone calling themselves the Kievan Rus in the in the tenth century or the eleventh century. There wasn't this national consciousness that existed. And a lot of times, stories like this, or a lot of times, ancient histories, because everyone wants an ancient history, like right. everyone wants an origin story. Mm-hmm. They are Sounds used familiar. to create some type of national identity, right? Or national like linear story, like right. having a linear story is very is is very convenient for for like they a want state cohesion. National you know, they, they don't like plot holes, you know. Yeah, they want to be able to be like we are the descendants of these people, the Scythians. <laughs> we are the, the direct descendants of this people. Usually, when someone says that they're the direct descendants of an ancient people, usually. Well, it's not true. You're you're a Sarmatian, and I'm a Sea People. So exactly, we learned this through our studies. Yes, but a couple episodes ago, when we were talking about the conflict right now in Ukraine, we were we were talking about the the tri, the Tribune People thesis, and uh, this is something that Putin believes. 
it is the belief that all Eastern Slavs, so Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, are one overarching community. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're all the descendants of one group of people, but they they basically speak the same language. They're dialects that are different. So, right. you know, Ukrainian is just Russian, but it's just a different dialect. Don't say that um, to Ukrainians. <laughs> I mean, I don't know the way to classify that stuff. I'm not in a position to do that, so... I will not comment. One time I remember I was, this was back in 2000, well, it had to be 2014 because it was right after Russia uh, um, annexed Crimea. Mm-hmm. You ever go to a Bulgarian a Bulgarian ice bar? Uh, no, but I've heard of them. So I went to a Bulgarian ice bar with a, a couple of my friends and they had a Groupon where you went into an ice box, mm-hmm. you dressed up like a Soviet soldier you and you took as many things. shots of vodka <laughs> over like a two minute period. Mm-hmm. It was a very funny thing. So you went into the ice box and then you took as many shots as possible. It was fun. Um, one of my friends. Wait, is that uh, where, where they like beat you with those leaves or is that like their, that's the spa it, thing? They don't know. That's a Russian bathhouse. Ah, my bad. I'm so the two. when we walk out, my buddy is like, yeah, let's go invade Ukraine. The, the guys were who owned it weren't, weren't you? They weren't Bulgarian. They were Ukrainian. Oh, shit. They, they threw us out <laughs> because my friend made that comment. But yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that mistake. I'm sensitive. I'm PC. You're woke. Identity politics in different countries. Mm-hmm. I'm woke. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is the belief that they're all three are the same. You know, they're the same people and they just have different dialects. Um, but the problem with that is that with the emergence of of nations like Ukraine and Belarus in the 20th, 20th century, it broke the monopoly on, you know, the all Russian historical account into separate histories of each nation. And all these national histories hold the Kievan Rus as the common starting point. What presenting this state does, it gives the illusion that at one time there was this national consciousness. Mm-hmm. There was this, eth- you know, this shared ethno-cultural background that stems back from the 10th century, which it's just so murky. Like, how do you trace back your your lineage that far? There's so it's much It's like that all of happen. humankind, like, saying that we were all, you know— the same monkey community, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, way back 20, 200,000 years ago or whatever, we were all one monkey community, community. Like, I know it, like, that's what it feels like, you know, it's like, yeah, sure. You know, like we all have a shared, you know, um, starting point, but like to what extent one were were the people then aware of the fact that they were one cohesive community if in fact they were one cohesive community at all uh and also you know how how um When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. How accurately can you trace that lineage throughout time? Like the farther back you go, the harder it is, right? So how far, how accurately can you trace that lineage where you can confidently say that this is, you know, like a, a truthful representation of, of the, you know, the historical record or, or you know, uh, of your culture's origin story, you know? So it just becomes really murky, like you said, you know? I can't 
most people don't know, at least most Americans, I know some people have like these family books where they trace their families really, really far back. Mm. Um, most Americans are I'm pretty jealous like that. of that, by the way, to be very, honest. I don't know. Very few yeah. Americans are like that. Like if you got a, if you if you know your family's coat of arms and you're not like English right now, uh, I'm jealous. <laughs> like that's not a thing that I that I get to know. Most Americans don't know th- their grand their great grandparents' first name. <laughs> yeah, I don't know my first great my great grandparents' first names. Um, I know mine because I just know my my great grandfather was Thomas. Because his father was Thomas and everyone, mm. his son was Thomas. So I only know they made one it of easy my for you, right? They all have the same name. name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, most people, I, I can't trace back my family heritage really anywhere. We were talking about this when we were doing our episode on our series on Japan. And we talked about the concept of the imagined community by Benedict Anderson. And, you know, this this is a nation is imagined because it's possible for members of a nation to because it's not possible for members of a nation to know all of the other uh, nations. However, in their minds, they live in the same community. So it's a construct like if you if you break this down to a more micro level, like we use the example of like what school you go to or what college you go to. You know, let's just say if you go to Penn State or something like that, Fuck or Penn Danny, State. in your case, Rutgers, um, there's no way that you know every single student in that community. There's no way that you will know every single person in your undergraduate class, yet you're still like the Penn State community or We're the Rutgers Knights. community <laughs> yeah. or the Knights community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Penn State's case, you know, that, that community is so strong that you you guys still venerate Joe Paterno. <laughs> um, you guys are fine with him turning a, bl- a blind eye to Sandusky. Yeah. Molesting a child. Yeah, I mean, that's how far that, na- that's how far that community goes. That's, that's how um, far nationalism goes, bro. Penn, Penn state is, uh, I feel like, uh, there's something in the water there. People are extra weird about going to Penn state at Penn state. They're like, Oh man, I went to Penn State. I only hire Penn State alumni. This this theory emerges around like the 19th, early 20th century. Um, you know, this this theory about, you know, everyone coming from the same origin. Um, but it's not really until World War II. It was formulated by scholars for the purpose of of really just wartime patriotism and, mm-hmm. and like anti-German sentiment, which which brings another issue that we, have, we didn't even discuss yet. The the first Kievan princes had Scandinavian names, right? They're not Slavic <laughs> names, which is super which, awkward when you consider that they were using this Kievan Rusing, you know, idea as a as a way to like stir up anti-German sentiment. <laughs> well, if you so every single uh, textbook or or history book that you read on this topic is gonna probably have a chapter on something called the Varengian controversy. Right. And the Varengian controversy was the question of whether the first Kievan uh, princes were either uh, Germanic, so Varengian, or Russian or East Slavic. So there's like, there's always been this debate going back, you know, a long time. You know, who were the original founders, the, the state creators? Were it the Viking, the Vikings, essentially? When we say the Scandinavians, because the Vikings were, you said it earlier, the Vikings were in that network of trade through right. the river system, and um, they had, you know, they 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 were. They were there. Stakeholder. They were they were key stakeholders in the mm-hmm. creation of the state. Hundred um, percent, yeah. And I think that part is super wild. I think the, like the short version of the story goes that the the Vikings tended to trade all over the place, like like you said, and and the place that made the most money at the time was you know the Slavic land. <laughs> so um, event, you know, eventually they took. And this was the, a this was a Slavic big city land. compared to other medieval. It was the biggest cities. city, arguably. Yeah, yeah. It was about the size of Paris at the time, so right. it was bigger than London. 
it was a big city, mainly because of the trade networks it had with with the Eastern Roman Empire. Exactly. Um, exactly. And yeah, it's, it sat, like I said, in in the middle of uh, between the 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 Viking domain and the and the Eastern uh, Roman domain. You know, so it just happened to be like a a very rich place, and like Vikings tend to go take over places that are rich. <laughs> like that's just their mo. Uh, and I mean, eventually the Slavic people defeated the Vikings. Uh, like they they kicked them out. Uh, and then the Slavs started fighting against themselves for some reasons. Uh, and then this is where the story gets super weird. They figured that the Slavs figured that they were better with better off with like the Vikings as rulers. So they invited them back. It, it just is super weird, dude. It feels like like the never Trumpers who are like beginning to like like ask for the george bush types of the world to come back to the forefront when trump took office you know it's just weird it's weird so i actually think i have the quote of what you're saying um let me pull that up but what you're talking about is the primary chronicle right Mm -hmm. yeah so what we know about the kievan rus today is based primarily on the account of um of its history the the primary chronicle which was like the earliest uh rus historical narrative mm. and you know we don't even we don't know who wrote this it's like the bible it was right. most likely the work of a number of editors over time it was the wikipedia of its day it was the wikipedia of its time so it was a lot of different voices in there and according to the primary chronicle once upon a time, there was a group of uh, Slavic and uh, Finno-Ugric or Ugric tribes. Finno-Wetic? Finnish and Estonia and you know, oh. that region. Hmm. Um, and this coalition of tribes overthrew the Varingian rulers. The new government that they set up implodes. There's a vacuum. Right. A power vacuum. And, power vacuum. You know, there's all sorts of problems with, you know, administrating the, the city. and Administrating droughts. the land bridge between... Uh, Eastern Roman Empire and the Vikings. <laughs> yeah, there's all sorts of issues, and their society collapses. Right, that's the narrative in the Primary Chronicle. There's mm-hmm. famine, there's droughts, so civil war breaks out. Right. I mean, I was looking at the history, like the hit. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but the history of that place was more likely just like a series of towns with you know with wealthier towns with princes who used to go to war with each other a lot. Right. But. What ends up happening, and according to the Primary Chronicle, is sounds like a good album name, right? Primary Chronicle. <laughs> yeah. Um, what they end up doing is they go back to the Varingians, and they're like, "Hey, uh, how about coming back?" <laughs> you know, it would be like if the U.S. Let's get the band back together. <laughs> if the U.S. was, um, you know, after the Revolutionary War. 10 years later they were like hey can we uh get back in this empire in this british empire yeah that that was fun but here's the quote i wanted to read because this is directly from the chronicle they accordingly went overseas to the Varingian. wait am i reading the right one yes this is yeah they accordingly went overseas to the uh, Varingian rus these particular Varingians were known as rus just as as some are called Swedes and other Normans, English, and Gotlanders, for they were thus named. The Chud, the Slovenians, the Krivichians, and the Vestans said to the people of Rus, Our land is great and rich, but there is no order in it. Come to rule and reign over us. They thus selected three brothers within their kinfolk who took with them all of the Rus and migrated. So like all of the Slavs were... We're subs. <laughs> They're like, "Oh, daddy, come and come and make me submit to you." It's like a <laughs> weird. It reads like a BDSM manga or some shit like that. It's weird. It, I mean, does it sound legit? No, nah, not exactly. You know, so like based on what you're saying and based on what I'm reading, it's it, these Varingians, you know, the Viking rulers, you know, were just invited to come marry them, uh, come like rule them again, and then they intermarried with the Slavs or something i don't know it's it seems sus seems very sus i guess the purpose of this story is that by choosing their own rulers it now became a legitimate union Mm -hmm. 
rather than like a slave master or like an overlord type relationship. So um, if you're, <laughs> so does that mean if you're in a, an abusive relationship and then you invite them back, it makes it okay? <laughs> you know, like how does that work? I imagine, yeah, that would be a way that you would justify it. Now, um, I read this book called um, The Ethnic Origins of Slav, but it's by uh, Serhi Plokhi. Serhi Plokhi? Serhi Plokhi. I don't know. Serhi Plokhi. <laughs> you know, I'm Polish myself, and I just, I suck at pronouncing anything that's just not straight American <laughs> or English or Anglo. Anything that's not Anglo in nature, I cannot pronounce for shit, for shite. I'm better at pronouncing Middle Eastern words than fucking Eastern European words. Keep at it, man. You'll get there. Yeah. Doesn't really matter. Do I have to? Do I? Have you know to? what I mean. You, you know the thing. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> As Biden <the> says. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know only the like thing. Two percent of the people are upset. <laughs> um. But yeah. So let me read this quote from this book I read. So we know perfectly well that whatever problems former subjects encounter. They do not go back to their former overlords voluntarily. It is well established fact that Varingians penetrated the Finno-Urgic or Udric and East Slavic territories by military conquest, not mm. by invitation. Mm. While the episodes of choosing the faith and creating the Slavic alphabet find parallels in other literary traditions, should we then reject these legendary legends entirely? By no means. Apart from the possibility that they reflect elements of historical reality, they represent a unique source for the study and understanding of what we may call the hybrid identity of the Rus elites. And uh, just going back, when to give that more context, when he says the um, the alphabet and stuff like that um, earlier in the book, he was writing that you know there is um, you know conflicting stories about how the Rus adopted the uh, alphabet from Eastern, right. from the from Eastern the Roman Eastern Empire Roman. and um, also Christianity because there's right. just a lot of contradictions within it. But right. just to give you a sense, they adopted, this area had a higher rate of literacy because they lived closer to the Eastern Roman Empire and they actually had their uh, a, a, a much longer literary history than other parts of Europe because because of that. You know, they had their alphabet and they were writing because most this was still early in Europe after the Roman Empire well the Western Roman Empire fell. Right. Um and a lot of countries were illiterate. Right. Or a lot of most people were illiterate and didn't really have a literary tradition. One thing I found super interesting about that quote was that hybrid identity idea. I, I find that super fascinating. Uh, because like, like, like you were said, when you look at some of those early, early stories, of the Kevin Roos, it's, you, know, you have to like think of its duality, right? Uh, there's, there's this element of like this Viking ancestry, right? So it's, it's no surprise that, you know, a lot of the early economic activity, uh, of the Kevin Roos involved raiding, right? Cause that's what Vikings do. Um, so there's, there was a lot of stories about them being kind of like savage, um, and, and those were honestly coming mostly from Greeks and Romans who were, you know, full of shit and just <laughs> didn't like different people very much. Um, but like some of it was warranted because like there was the one time that they raided Constantinople. Uh, that was a thing, right? Um, but but the whole savagery bit isn't the only story either, right? The, the, the Viking part of the story isn't the whole side of the story because the other side of the coin is like, it shows how the Byzantines ended up conquering the Rus not militarily but with culture uh so the the Rus were totally into like the latest fashion of constantinople they loved the clothes and things like that um you, you mentioned earlier the the cyrillic alphabet right so that the it's based heavily on on the Greek. it's like backwards alphabet yeah. it's, it's it's like it, backwards r backwards p or whatever <laughs> it's it's based actually probably on on the greek uh uh from the byzantines um that story is heavily argued as well. Um, so I won't get too deep into that. Um, and, and like you also said, you, you mentioned Christianity too, 
right? Uh, so that that was another uh, import from, uh, you know, from the, the the south from the Byzantines. So it's 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 definitely interesting to think about the hybrid identity idea is is more than likely the truest, the closest to the truth that I think is is out there right now, which is that it's it wasn't exclusively one thing, you know, as as much as as you know Slavic people would love. To have one cohesive, very clear-cut, you know, uh, explanation. I think it's much more nuanced than that. And I think, geographically speaking, where they were sitting, yeah, they were subjected to a whole lot of, a whole lot of influence from a whole lot of places. So I think they, and, and I think that's cool. I think that's cooler than just being like, oh no, we're just Slavic people, or oh no, we're just Vikings. You know, it's. I think it's cooler to be, you know, this like melting pot of all this awesome stuff and that created an awesome you know, some of the biggest cities of the time. That's cool to me. I think that's that's more real than, than the weird stories that they're trying to tell themselves. Well, here's a quote, another quote I took from the same paper. Our contemporary historical knowledge convinces us that Kievan Rus is our antiquity. And we have our antiquity as the Western Europeans have theirs. And in this sense, it belongs to the I told you this was translated kind of weird. It belongs to the all countries, and I repeat once more, not a separate country. The Kievan Rus is our pride and joy. There was no state there, no nationality, no stable religion and church, but it had high culture, freedom, and much good. Mm-hmm. We have to understand that we cannot lengthen the history of contemporary countries of the post-Soviet space at the expense of, Ki- of Kievan Rus. In this sense, the history of West European countries is longer and their antiquity older than ours. Our states are comparatively young, but our antiquity is our great pride and not just the object of clashes and historical wars. And this was a really interesting paper yeah. that I yeah. read. Um, th- I mean, despite, you know, there's some translation issues. It was, you know, it's... It was it's re, it's readable and it's worth giving a read. I'll, I'll post this in the link as well. But what this paper kind of points out is that um, most of the history of the, of the Kievan Rus was a product of just the nation building process. Like it was most of it was part of the nation building process. And mm-hmm. you know what he I think this guy might be a Marxist too. He was saying that. Um, like you didn't need to exaggerate that it was a state because like there was already high culture going on. There's enough evidence of high culture going on there. Yeah, so I mean that that definitely does sound very Marxist though. No state, no nationality, no stable religion, no church, <laughs> but culture, freedom, and good. You know that's that that definitely sounds a bit communist flavor. But but you're right though. Um, I, I think I think it's a fascinating idea that he's that that mr DiGiorno is pointing out there well there was that, a there was a line in this essay that was like you know e- like remember marx himself he did hate slavs <laughs> he didn't like he didn't like slavics mm-hmm. but we forgive him like it was like a line of something unless i misread it i'll, I'll post it in here i don't have the the actual article up besides this quote but it was interesting it was just like an interesting um read uh because it's it's from a russian source rather than you know an american um writing on it so it's nice just to to get that you know different perspective but just going back it's all these nations are just these constructs that were created you know like going back into like the even like the 1400s or 1500s all right, I'll, I'll give you a good example of this because I'm kind of fly, flying off the. I'm having trouble articulating this right now. Mm. If you watch them show the Last Kingdom, which I always talk about on this show, <laughs> yeah, it is really entertaining. It's kind of cheesy and corny at the same time, but I enjoy it. I I think it's a really fun show. But there's this. It, the story is about like the. The Saxons and the Danes fighting each other in, in England in, in the ninth century and the ninth and tenth century, and um, so it, around the same time, around around the same time as this, 
And um, Uhtred is like this badass, like Saxon, who was kidnapped by the Danes when he was a child and then raised as a Dane. And then he goes back to fight with the Saxons and he's like the, he's the Dane Slayer. He's working with Alfred the Great, who is a real king. And um, in this show, they keep on saying, we need to fight for Alfred's idea of an England because there's no England at this time. So the last kingdom is Wessex. They're the last kingdom not to be conquered by the Danes. And then, you know, next to them is Mercia. And then there's uh, Wallis, like Wales and um, East Anglia. Um, So there's all these other different kingdoms there. And Alfred's goal in life, and he keeps on stressing this, is like, my the idea of an England. There will be an idea of an England. He wants to unite all the different English kingdoms together and create the idea of an England. It sounds corny when they talk about it because I doubt that they were thinking that in that way. Like we, my idea of one cohesive England. Maybe they were. Maybe I'm just completely wrong. But maybe just my skepticism on popular well, history is that I, I think that a far. lot of it is uh, I think you're getting at something because a lot of it is hindsight 2020, right? I think in the moment they're not like just even using the word England is kind of like wild to me in the same way that, you know, we use the word Kevin Roos to, to describe the, the society that we've been having the show about. Um, that is a word that we ascribe to them now, right? Uh, but when they were thinking about unifying the lands, I don't think that they had a name in mind or even that they had like a cohesive culture or like national identity in mind. They just had the idea that, hey, let's all get together, right? Either because it's economically better or because, you know, for uh, military reasons, it would be better to be unified or just because you have the urge to dominate, <laughs> you know, and that's it. Uh, and it has... But but it's usually among a very select few people, right? We're talking about like the elites, the 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 kings, the queens, the princes, things like that. You know, those are the ones with the with the ruminations, with the machinations to to unify England in that case, or you know, to create a a great you know Kievan Rus, right? But you know, do, is that community real? Is the question is that was that community at the time real? Did they all consider themselves as a part of the same community, a part of the same identity? The, the answer is probably no, right? I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places: Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Probably not at the time. 
you have much more at that time period i would imagine you have much more unity with your local like town right your local your local village there's probably way you probably like each village had their very own distinct culture right even their distinct dialect mm-hmm. we didn't have they didn't we didn't they didn't have mass media right or mass but- papers like we didn't have the printing press to like they weren't able to mass produce a type of medium that everyone could follow along. And maybe they had some shared experiences, right? Like, you know, their shared experience might be that, uh, you know, from town to town, they were both ruled by the same ruler and they both had to pay the taxes to the same, you know, sovereign. Uh, so those things might've created like this, some like quasi sense of community, like, ah, shit, we got to pay the man, you know? But like outside of that, you know, even even I would argue probably the differences between Kiev and you know Novograd, that were two very large cities, were probably very fucking different communities at the time. Yeah, they definitely, they absolutely were. Like all of those, all of those like cities, because they're basically city states, right? In this like geographic area that you know we're experiencing wealth. At this right. time, you know right. what I mean. But we, but we call them today as one. The Kievan Rus, like exactly. it's like some like it was you know, a magical empire right. back in the day that right. you know, that you can trace some type of glory from. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that it's just it's just interesting how these stories are always part of the nation the nation building process. Like they're used to build national cohesion like they're they're built they're they're used to you know um create the like a shared experience and it's funny how um this is all in collusion with the academics and the state like the state Mm -hmm. and the the historical societies work together to make these narratives to figure it and that's what i find like the most amazing about these mm-hmm. stories and it's like for every country like it's not right. just like it's not like some um it's not unique it's like it's not unique doing it. yeah. every nation had to do this to build that national unity they had to get scholars to like read old text and you know go through um create like this national heritage with some type of legitimacy um, added to it so there, there had to be some type of like archaeological dig and stuff like that like oh we right. found the remains of a of a flemish man here like you know what i mean mm-hmm. um we found the remains of a franks in the case of france like um so they have to like have some legitimacy to that process but it's just interesting that there needs to be this process where this where the government and you know the university system join each other to create this narrative that they plan on mass producing to their society in order to create a nation like that i mean that's i mean that's how it start that's that's I'm interested in that i'm interested in that in that delivery method i think that's the one piece that i haven't seen enough of it's like you know how how do they start delivering that? I also want to want to take this and and blow this up a bit because you know I like talking about aliens and I, I'm thinking about aliens right now because you know I think about the Kevin Roos and and I think about like how we're ascribing this idea the idea of an England the idea of a you know Kevin Roos at the time that probably didn't exist at the time. But because we're looking at back at it with the with the through the uh, the lens of of, of history that we uh, that we constructed for ourselves, um, I wonder if let's say in a thousand years, you know, some time between now and you know, fuck it, five thousand years. Let's let's really push it out there, right? Five thousand years from now, we're still alive somehow. You know, we we survived the global warming crisis, and you know, eventually we find out that we are you know only one you know habitable planet with sentient life out of thousands of others in the galaxy and you know we 
join the galactic community, uh, whether, you know, uh, through military or just, you know, through blind curiosity and, and science. And, um, and I think about how the historians then would look back on Earth today and would they ascribe to us a type of like ancient earth culture <laughs> like they would call us like earthlings and and they would make these like you know uh uh nationalist or um nationalist wouldn't be the word would it because we'd talk about globalist let's call it globalist would it be globalist it would be I guess like so. I think, yeah, I guess globalist. Yeah, globalist would work, but in a very not. We're not talking about the globalists here. I'm talking about literally the word globalist, uh, like nationalist, as an example. I think it would still apply if the nation, um, the nation is the globe. You know? The nation is the globe, or if the nation is the solar system, or the nation right. is like your planetist, um, your planetist. planet. You know your yeah. your the nation planets is planet. that you colonized. But but so I think about that right, and I think about how how would the historians then try to <laughs> to to bridge the many gaps that we have with one another, <laughs> you know, uh, and make pretend that we all had this kind of you know unifying you know Earthling. You well, know, now would be the time to write that story. You know? This period right now where we're yeah. at would be yeah. like there's no other time in like global history where. There's been just one power. Right. This this is where you would start the story, right? Like this is where start, the story gets murky. There's right. never been just one uh, hegemony ever in mm-hmm. world history, right? Like even and the Rome, like even the Romans, <laughs> even the time of the Roman Empire, like they weren't unstoppable. Obviously, right. even and at there was height. Also a massive Chinese uh, uh, empire. There was massive like uh, Native American empires. You know, uh, I mean, so. me, I mean. The Roman Empire couldn't really like stretch too far, you right. know. Once they went out to like the steppe, for example, the they circle is back to the steppe. You know, they <laughs> yeah. wouldn't really be able to last that long. You know, I mean, it, it's just hard for an empire to keep on marching and marching and marching and like having your army. Like they can go up to Northern Europe and you know beat up some barbarians, um, but. Going over to the steppe, fighting the horse lords was always an issue for them, especially because like the further you go out, you know, the thinner your supply lines get and and all that. You could say the same thing about like space, right? Like we couldn't extend our empire that very far into space, you know, because we're just like a little fledgling thing, you know, but it would start now, wouldn't it? Like that, well, that the story would start now because right now it'd be like the American planet. Like, oh, yep. it's like the great – because we're planet America right now. <laughs> yeah, kind of. We're pla- it's planet America. They may, just, they, might, they may as well just call it planet America. You ever hear that song by uh, Rammstein, America? We're all living in America. <laughs> it's a cool song. Good video. Planet too. America – the United States government will <laughs> – nuke a country before it gives up that hegemony <laughs> it already it, has. it would absolutely nuke that well it already has but it'll do it again <laughs> yeah i mean you said the u.s used to threaten they don't really the u.s doesn't threaten people with nukes that much anymore they don't but have in like to because the they're 50s already, yeah in the 50s and 60s the u.s used to threaten everyone with nuking like, we'll nuke you we'll nuke you <laughs> like, say something else say, yeah, say Wait, something else say what, what again what motherfucker national <laughs> They, when Iraq tried to nationalize their oil, they threatened to nuke them yeah. in the 50s. Like, we'll, we're going to nuke you if you do that. And they're like, Say okay, what again? we're joking. We're, <laughs> we're joking. We're not going to do that. Um, yeah, man. So we'd be Planet America. It's settled. Uh, the, the, you know, the alien historians from 5,000 years from now will dig into the you know, ancient archives of the interweb. And they would clearly see our culture dominated and was pervasive throughout the entire world. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they would come across a podcast called Bro History. And they'd be like, wow, look, this is like the ancient historians of the time. Look, they chronicled everything for us in a way that's easy for us aliens to understand. What if, like, we become, like, the subjects in ancient history and they... And they 
come back and they, they master time travel. And they come and back to us? They come oh, back. Oh, jeez. <laughs> for some reason. To, to, to Henry and Danny to from bring no us history? into the future. They create some type of time loop that's necessary for it. Maybe, the, maybe that's what happened with this podcast. Hey, H.G. Lovecraft didn't know that he was writing these mega hits when he was writing them. And look well, at him now. He's yeah. dead. Without getting famous before all his big hits came out. So are you trying to say that we're not going to blow up as a podcast until we die? Well, we're partially blown up. Yeah, I guess so, right? Yeah. We have, we have a decent listener base. Um, we're no Joe Rogan, but who is? <laughs> we're no... We're no um, not even Joe Rogan's Joe Rogan anymore. I know. We're no... We're no... Um, come town... That's another famous podcast, right? Well, in time. In 5,000 years, they'll, they'll be looking back at us and being like, yeah, those those awesome historians from planet America. You guys aren't historians. You guys aren't that, fucking that would historians. Be the joke. What the, would be what the, the joke fuck? <laughs> These guys say they're historians. What the fuck? You guys don't know what you're talking about. What you're the fuck? Fun. Read a book, man. What the fuck, man? <laughs> Learn how to pronounce things before you call yourself pronounce, a historian. What the fuck, man? Put it in the pronounce. Put it on pronounce.com. What the fuck? How are you going to talk about this shit? <laughs> Can't even pronounce fucking, like, a traditional fucking Ukrainian name. Fuck you. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, like, everyone is getting into... I'll end with this. We'll keep this in the show. That's a little, little gripe. It's funny, though. So everyone's like getting into like political debates online, like oh, like either a bunch of like people on the left attack somebody, or you know, vice versa, or whatever. Like you know, people are getting into these um, kind of vicious right-left dichotomy type arguments uh, based off their views. For us, is we don't get any of that. Like very rarely does like a left winger or a right winger comes after us. It's yeah. always like somebody who's like, what the fuck, man? You didn't talk about this tribe. Like, you didn't talk about, like, the fucking, <laughs> like, or they'll come up to us and be like, hey, thanks for talking about those sleazy T-grade. Like, it'll just be <laughs> something like, intensely <laughs> kind of like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, we weren't talking, a, you know, we weren't a saying that the T-grade people should die. That... <laughs> That wasn't where we were getting at when we were talking about the Ethiopia episode. Like, it really wasn't. We weren't. I'm glad you liked the show, but we weren't. Yeah. Um, we weren't agreeing with any type of genocide. And they were like, oh, the Tigray should die. I'm like, nah, nah, this, that really wasn't really the point. We were just trying to make a point that there was a, a an issue with, with. They were having problems, okay? They were having problems up there. We weren't, yeah. we weren't going to go that far but yeah or we'll get it from i used to get it a lot with um pro um syrian uh free syrian army people yeah like, like two years ago like a year and a half ago um that those are the type of things i get attacked by or well i i would get, get it from by. the you know from the folks that think i had trump derangement syndrome even though you know it's like clearly we i don't have that and that's not the entire show either, because you definitely don't have it. <laughs> you know, I don't know. If I think if you listen to an entire episode and you think that we have Trump's derangement system or derangement syndrome. system or syndrome, or I think you just have, you just have listening problems. You need to fucking relax. All right, <laughs> we're just not even talking about anything anymore. We should probably end this. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, thank you guys for listening to another episode of Bro History. Um, sorry, that went off the rails at the end, but it is late as hell. It's 11.30 p.m. right now. And honestly, I'm falling asleep while we're talking on the mic right now. So make sure that you rate and review the podcast. Um, rate and review. It is the number one way to help us grow our show. Uh, click on right in the top right-hand corner. The other thing you could do is you can join us on Patreon. My inner Joe Bryden. Joe Bryden. Um, Dr. Steve Brule. Preza. Patreon. You can Patreon. join us on Patreon. Um, and you will get access to additional content. 
you will also get access to our Slack account where we talk and shoot the shit. And it's a good, fun way to communicate. So, uh, yeah, rate, review, uh, support us on Patreon, uh, you know, whatever you guys want. We love you. And make sure that you tune in next week. Peace. Peace. Hey guys, just want to give you a quick heads up that the following week, we're not going to be able to record another episode. Uh, So the next episode that's going to be launched from Bro History will be two weeks from now instead of next week. We always try to get an episode out every single week. Unfortunately, schedules are just too crazy right now, so it's not going to work out. But we appreciate you bearing with us, and uh, we look forward to releasing our next episode in two weeks from now. Um, Hope you guys enjoy the rest of your day, and peace. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.